It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. David Agus is a leading physician and professor of medicine. He regularly tracks how much sleep he's getting and how much he walks throughout the day. Technology, he says, is helping him regulate and improve personal behaviors. This kind of personal data that's becoming more widely available is critical for good health, he says. You know, if you walk an extra hour a week, you live longer. The data are very clear. And so we need technology to enable us. And you hate to say that, we should all know what to do, but having built-in feedback loops for technology to me is empowering. He says we're living in a golden age when the latest science and technology can customize care. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit lecture series held by Aspen Community Programs. David Agus, who wrote the book The Lucky Years, says we're living in a time when it's easier than ever to improve health. Thanks to science and technology, we can more easily avoid or control chronic conditions, prolong natural fertility, reverse aging, and turn cancer into a manageable condition. He calls these advances a great equalizer because they're widely available and cheap. In his conversation with Jessica Hertstein, a doctor who specializes in preventative medicine, Agus also weighs in on the COVID-19 pandemic. He says poor testing gave the virus an eight-week head start in the U.S., and now it's spreading rapidly. There is a technology um, that will work and will actually stop spread of the virus. If we all did it in the country over the next three weeks, there would be no virus left. It's called wearing a mask. Um, but to normalize that behavior, to normalize any behavior, you need leadership. Here's their conversation about living longer and preventing further spread of the coronavirus. Jessica Hertstein starts us off. So David, technological advances are key to our future living longer and healthier lives, especially the capacity to tailor to the individual. So, so what is um, personalized medicine or precision medicine and why are you so enthusiastic about it? You know, throughout history, we've treated everyone the same, um, and we bucketized disease, which is a funny word, but we've done that. Cancer is based on body part. It's a remnant of the 1800s in Germany, breast, lung, prostate, brain. Um, and we can now say, what are the on and the off switches? And we could subcategorize disease so we can actually target the root cause and in, give the right drug and the right dose and the right patient at the right time which is something we dreamed of before. You know, technology really has enabled that and it's become commonplace. You know, Jerry and Gina changed my life a decade ago um, where they introduced me to Murray Gelman at Aspen. And Murray, you know, a physicist, one of the greatest brains of, of our generation, showed me how we in the body are a complex emergent system. And what's amazing about complex emergent systems is that it's very hard to understand, yet you can control them. So the whole notion of what he called coarse graining, you know, looking at the shape of the cloud, not measuring every variable to predict the weather and doing the same thing in human biology. You know, when you were sick, your mother went like this. She didn't measure your T cells and your cytokine levels. She knew right away you were sick, probably more accurately than if you got reductionist and look at a hundred thousand variables, she knew right away. And so that power really has enabled a new era in medicine, which is using ideas like that to really personalize care in a dramatic new way. And it's working, you know, whether it be cancer, arthritis, heart disease, we can personalize treatment like never before. 
Will I be able to understand or to know what diet is best for me finally, rather than, you know, all this changing science all the time? Will they be able to tell us things like that? The hard part about diet is much of what you do in diet is going to affect you a decade from now or two decades from now. So there's a lag time. You know, it's very hard. You know, Mark Twain said the amazing quote, right? The only way you keep your health is eat what you don't want, drink what you don't like, and do what you'd rather not. And so, you know, the argument really is, is that if you want to know if tomatoes are good for you, eat a diet in tomatoes, you're not going to know for decades. Did I get heart disease? Did I get cancer? So it's very hard. You know, all of a sudden, though, technology is going to come through. You know, now you can uh, detect through the skin changes in insulin and sugar. And pretty soon you're going to have watches that tell you that. And you're going to start to see, hey, when I eat this, my insulin goes through the roof. So let me eat carbs in combination with protein and it goes this high. And you'll be able to start to personalize things based on a real immediate feedback loop. We've never had that before. And so it's very exciting to be able to use technology to actually change behavior. It's very hard if I tell you, you know, Jessica, I want you to do this or this, you kind of roll your eyes at me because you're not going to feel differently and you're not going to know 10, 20 years, forget it. That's the hardest thing with health. There's a lag time. But when we have technology to give us immediate, immediate feedback loops, it's going to change like this. You know, you look at something, meditation works because you feel better right afterwards, right? There's no question about it. You feel better. Eating good food doesn't necessarily make you feel better right away. But if we start to have these metrics, we're going to be able to change behavior and have a better long-term outcome. You mentioned that precision medicine isn't so precise. What did you mean by that? You know, many times we, we overuse our technology. You know, Google did an amazing thing is they bought the Ancestry.com data set. And in it, they had a, about 100,000 individuals who were genotype. They looked at their DNA and they started to try to identify the gene for longevity. And they searched and they searched. And what they found was shocking. I could tell how long you're going to live more accurately by asking you how long your spouse's mother lived than by sequencing your whole genome. Turns out genetics are only four to 5% of longevity. The other is behavior. And you marry people of similar behavior and they inherit their behaviors or they do the same behaviors classically as their parents. So if you or your parents hated doctors and medicine and didn't do any the right thing, Likelihood is you probably behave the same and you'll marry somebody of similar traits. So by looking at your spouse's mother correlates more to longevity than sequencing your whole genome. So sometimes we overthink them. You know, genetics are a code. You know, if I had a car, I took about a car, took about every piece. It doesn't tell you how long it takes to get from Aspen to Denver. You forgot the bladder size of the driver, the weather, the traffic, they all matter. In medicine, many times we just keep taking apart the car and looking at the pieces, but we forget that complex system that Murray Gilman was so beautifully uh, talking about. Well, that's an excellent perspective. We, we do hear an awful lot about genes and, and, and you that is part of what you are talking about for the future. So is it always good to know what our genes say about our future? What about the things that we learn about that we can't do anything about? Or as you mentioned, may not be completely accurate because genes aren't the whole story. Um, my husband recently received a, a test kit um, from, uh, from his son uh, to test his genes. And uh, I suggested that he do the test for the ancestral information, but not do the information for the diseases he may be at risk for. So I question whether we really wanna know we have a 20% 
uh, higher risk of something that there's nothing you can do about. And besides, you don't even know if you're going to get it and you might worry a lot about it. But how much do we want to know from our genes and how helpful will it be? It's a great question. I mean, there's no right answer to it, obviously. Um, and it really depends on your own value system. To me, knowledge is power and knowledge is important. So, you know, when I, I launched the first kit where you spin into a tube, we sequence your DNA, DNA and we'll say it'll happen. And so we had a woman on uh, the, the TV show Nightline and she and I were on and she was a remarkable woman whose husband had early onset Alzheimer's. And he was before was one of the heads of the NIH. And live on TV, we gave her her results and she was high risk for Alzheimer's. She had about a 70% chance in her lifetime of Alzheimer's based on her genetics. And you know, she was a hero. She said, listen, I'm gonna double my efforts to raise money. I'm gonna do everything I can in prevention. Even though it's not defined that these things will definitively work, I'm still gonna be lean body mass and exercise, et cetera. I'm gonna be an advocate. I'm gonna push Congress. I am empowered. And that was beautiful. If you look at the NIH reveal study, which actually looked at looking at the APOE4, the gene risk for Alzheimer's, it showed that you know anybody, you know, these are family history. So most people, when they take this test, they know mom had Alzheimer's, so therefore I'm probably high likelihood. It's always in the back of your mind. And actually having the information can spur behavior change, can spur uh, early detection, can spur you being an advocate. And I love those aspects. It's not right for everybody. It may keep you up all night, every night, but if you look at the reveal study, in general, people had a positive outcome because they always thought they were likely to get these diseases and knowing information, either yes or no, actually encouraged them to action um, in a positive way. So I'm a believer in it, but you're right. It's one piece of the puzzle. You know, it's the instruction manual. What's happening a moment in time are newer technologies. It's metabolomics, it's microbiomics, it's proteomics, all exciting and encouraging and all new sciences, but pretty soon we're gonna know a lot more. And to me, it's critical to know that information and, you know, and to focus on the preventive side, which obviously you specialize in, because it's a lot easier to prevent something than it is to treat it. So true. Well, it's hard to motivate people sometimes. And that's part of what you're talking about there with understanding your genes. But we've known for a long time that in order to improve our health, we should sleep seven to eight hours. We should exercise regularly. We should not sit too long. We shouldn't drink too much. We should eat a nutritious diet, but not too much food. And as you remind us, maintain our muscular strength and control our levels of stress. So the problem is that people can't do it usually. Um, so how is technology going to make a big difference in our personal behaviors and sometimes our, our what can be subconscious decisions about we do what we do and what we don't do? Now you just described one thing where sort of seeing into your future may, may help motivate people. But for most of us, what is going to keep us day in and day out, year in and year out, you know, motivated and remembering what's really important? And the beauty of technology now is it can start to measure things. And we all think we sleep enough or we think we don't sleep enough. And nowadays, I, I'm one of those geeks that has a, a pad under my mattress. So it's under my mattress. I don't feel it. And every morning I can look on my cell phone and see how I slept. And I start to see my own correlations. I know alcohol isn't good for sleep, right? It's a depressant. So you fall asleep. Then three, four hours later, you get a rebound surge in adrenaline and you wake up. But when I actually see, listen, I know when I have more than two glasses of wine, I don't sleep well. And uh, I, I can see this, you know, right away. And it actually changed my behavior. I have a feedback loop there. And so, you know, I know I thought I walked a lot more than I did. And now I can look at these devices and say, hey, I really haven't moved. And the period between you know, two o'clock to six o'clock, I was just sitting at my desk. 
I need to get up and walk around and be reminded to do so. So having a feedback loop is critical. And again, we're going to start to have it with what we eat, how we behave. And, you know, to me, that's encouraging and exciting. My kids, you know, are, are classic, you know, 20 year olds who think they're impervious to everything, but they had the same device under their bed. And they realized that when they use their iPads at night, they weren't sleeping as deeply. So now both of my kids, you know, they wear those glasses that have the yellow lens and it blocks the blue light. And they know they get more deep sleep and it changed their behavior. So they had a feedback loop that was powerful. And more and more, we're gonna be able to do that. You know, I'm in our new institute that literally just opened last week. Um, and again, that came from that discussion with Murray about multiple disciplines working together. So we have an institute where the physicists and mathematicians and engineers all work in one place to understand the human body and cancer and disease. But every person who comes in gets a bracelet and it's a 5G enabled site. So I can look at who interacted with who. I can look at how much they moved around. If they're not interacting, I could change the layout. So all of a sudden I have a building that can give a feedback loop and I can know what's happening. So instead of you know, me just saying, well, it's important everybody talk to each other, I can actually see is did they? I could start to look and say, was it efficient how my nurse did things or not? And I could change how they do things. Um, those feedback loops are gonna be pretty soon in our house. We're gonna start to see when we're sedentary, when we move, and that data is gonna empower us. You know, if you walk an extra hour a week, you live longer. The data are very clear. And so we need technology to enable us. And you hate to say that, we should all know what to do, but having built-in feedback loops for the technology to me is empowering. And then we have to stick with it. <laughs> so how do you advise us as a society as we face unequal access to these technologies? that might create an even bigger gap between the wealthy and the poor. Uh, people in certain zip codes uh, live 20 years longer than people in other zip codes, and they may only be a few miles away. So how do we address that as these technologies grow? Exciting thing to me is that these technologies, I think are gonna be the great equalizers. They're actually gonna bring us all together. And most of the technologies we're talking about are rather inexpensive. Um, and actually can be accessible to almost everyone. And many of them are actually showing, you know, monitoring glucose. Well, now third-party payers, insurance companies are buying it for patients because they monitor their, keep their glucose better under control. They get hospitalized less and it costs less money. So the power is when you look at value-based care, which is where the mantra, where everything is going now, these actually are valuable and they actually add to care in a cost-effective manner. And so I think they're going to be very accessible to everybody. And it's going to be a new era where technology is actually going to lower the cost of healthcare. If we prevent hospitalizations, healthcare costs go down dramatically. And I think technology is going to enable that. So we're very cautious in pushing for technologies, uh, uh, you know, coming down a price. And they are. You're going to start to see a revolution in low cost technologies. You're going to see many of the, 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 the lower cost stores being places of healthcare access. Right now, you need to go to a doctor's office, uh, and it's very inefficient, and it costs a lot, and there are a lot of barriers. Very soon, you're going to be able to have your blood drawn by a prick of the finger anywhere, and you may be able to just teleconference with the doc. So much cheaper, easier, accessible to more people. And obviously, when you're living in a rural community, that changes everything because you can access experts everywhere. So telemedicine and these technologies to enable point of care, I think, are going to be transforming. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Physicist and mathematician Brian Greene is trying to understand our significance in a vast universe. 
In the past, he's written books about space-time, relativity, string theory, and quantum mechanics. Now he's exploring human search for meaning. Every time I was writing one of those books, it felt to me there was a whole nother story waiting to be told, which is how do these insights not just give us a deeper sense of how the world works, but how do they affect our sense of who we are? He spoke with Aspen Institute President Dan Porterfield for the all-digital Aspen Ideas Festival. Find their conversation on our website, aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's featured conversation. Here's Jessica Hertstein. So we see you on the news addressing uh, the pandemic, and uh, we thank you for helping uh, manage this and address all these concerns that um, really we're in the midst of now. Um, so briefly, tell us why our country seems to be failing in managing this. What are the things that we should have been, been doing differently and we should do differently? Obviously, you know, this is a, uh, a, a new time in the world, and it's a staggering moment in history that we will all remember. Throughout a million years of human evolution, our genome evolved 1%. This virus can change 1% in a day. And so the power of the virus is profound. Josh Lederberg, one of the great Nobel laureates, you know, said in the mid-1990s, the only thing that will challenge man and woman's dominance on the earth is the virus. It is our wits, our brains versus their genome. Um, and it was a very prescient statement, but very powerful. And so historically, most of the viruses we've seen were from livestock right? Uh, the, the whites brought it to America and the Indians, many of them died, uh, you know, from the viruses that horses and cows brought. This is a new era because of climate change, because of urbanization, because of us encroaching on the natural environment. We are for the first time seeing viruses from the wild. And this is a new era. And this era is only going to grow and continue. So we have to learn from what's happened now. Um, early on, the United States failed because we have very poor testing. Um, we thought we could make a test. There was a lot of nationalism. It has to be our test, and it didn't work. So the virus was given an eight-week start, a head start, and unfortunately, viruses grow you know, uh, exponentially. They don't grow linearly. And so with an exponential eight-week head start, the virus was all over. And this virus is different than almost every other virus we've seen because 40%, 50% of people are asymptomatic. Asymptomatic people mean well, don't realize they're sick, and go out and they could spread the virus. And most people, you know, most viruses, the flu, by the time you're symptomatic, that's when you start to be infectious. This virus, even if you become symptomatic, pre-symptomatic, a couple days before you were infectious. So everybody really can spread the virus without knowing it. And that's enabled crazy spread across the country of this virus. There is a technology um, that will work and will actually stop spread of the virus. If we all did it in the country, over the next three weeks, there will be no virus left. It's called wearing a mask. Um, but to normalize that behavior, to normalize any behavior, you need leadership. And right now, and really throughout the last several decades, we have very little healthcare leadership. We just don't put people in that position historically. And certainly now there isn't leadership that is really pushing people to do this simple behavior change. In countries where it's been normalized, you know, in the Asian countries, when you're sick, you wear a mask because you realize that you don't want to spread it to others. It's a sign of respect. In our country, that has not been normalized. So in South Korea, in Japan, in China, they've told people, listen, uh, we want everyone to wear a mask. And because that behavior has already been normalized, it hasn't been difficult. And they've done very well. And they haven't, they've been able to get over their first wave. And they have very small numbers of cases. In our country, we're still not over the first wave. 
you know, we are the only country that I am aware of with a bill of rights. We have a right to do what we want. All of us can do everything. Our personal choice is to do that. But when your personal choice affects the health of others, um, that's where we have to draw the line. You know, we had enabled people to stop smoking because we said, hey, listen, secondhand smoke kills. Before that argument, right, you had a right to smoke. It was your born right to be able to smoke and do whatever you wanted to your own health in that regard. But when it affected others' people health, that's where we drew the line. And we have to do the same here. Behavior, not wearing a mask in the future, not getting a vaccine, will enable and dramatically affect the health, the health lives of others. And that's something that we can't tolerate in this country. We have to stand up. This virus discriminates, right? It hits people of certain races, of certain ages, with medical conditions, and we can't help them. And we have to stand up, us as a collective society, and help each other. We have to be one community. But it's very hard to tell, you know, in the first inning, we got it. You had to stay at home. But this is the second inning. And how do you tell people how to behave when behavior is different depending on who you hear from and depending on where you live and what TV channel you watch? The results are different of what we should be doing. And there isn't a uniform uh, a spokesperson on this. And that's very difficult. And especially the younger generation are saying, listen, everybody's saying different things. I want to do what's easy because I'm going to be okay. And they're right. 20, 30-year-olds, the chance of them being hospitalized is near zero. But we have to make them change their behavior because they can spread to others. And that's just unacceptable. I hear you about the, the leadership. Um, and I think that you spell out exactly what we need to do. What are some of the things that we can do in addition to what you've mentioned um, about attitudes and politics and feelings about freedom? Um, there's a distrust of science and evidence and data that, that is very alarming. Um, so how do we start to turn that around, given that we're not going to probably change leadership immediately? Um, how can we use other? You know, I don't, uh, you know, I, obviously our government has not had a great response, but our whole country hasn't had a good response. Remember, our secret sauce in our country, don't tell anybody, but it's our science, right? In our science labs. Most universities in the country closed every lab. So we had our secret sauce that could have gotten our way out of it, and we closed the labs. So this isn't our government doing this. This is every major university in the country. Um, you have a university in England, a university that survived the plague, a university that was formed in 1046 that has developed a vaccine that turns out to be the leading candidate. So it wasn't the techiest university in the United States with all the, you know, the greatest endowment. It was one of the oldest universities in the world with the least technology has developed what is now the lead candidate for a vaccine. Um, and science will win. There is no question about it. I see it. I'm on calls every day with what's happening on the vaccine front and the therapy front. And there's a new class of therapy called monoclonal antibodies. You know, if I gave you, know, Jessica, you the virus, not on purpose, I just happened to sneeze on you. Um, I could then take some of the cells out of your bone marrow and some of those B cells would be making antibodies that would neutralize the virus. So not any antibodies, but antibodies that block the virus from doing its thing. And I could take those B cells, grow them up and make vats of this, which is what's called a monoclonal antibody. And I could give it to someone who had the virus and it will stop the virus cold in its tracks. I could give it to you and you could kiss somebody with the virus and you won't get the virus. Um, so it could be preventive or treatment. So there are a half a dozen of those in development and they all look encouraging. And there are now five excellent vaccine candidates in development. Um, there are 160 in development, but five look fantastic. And our government, to its credit, is doing what is called at-risk manufacturing. They are making hundreds of millions of doses of each in case they work. We got lucky with one of them, 
in that two uh, uh, philanthropists in Brazil funded a trial with the Oxford vaccine in Brazil. Turned out that it just took off a number of cases. So you need a lot of cases in an area where you're testing a vaccine to show it worked and you'll know much quicker. We're also gonna see the results of what do we call challenge trials. So challenge trials are remarkable, but scary. And so they're gonna do two of them. One is people who've had the virus, they're gonna give them the virus again. They're gonna put them in a hotel secluded from the rest of the people. And this will be done in the UK. And see what is real immunity. They're gonna define what immunity is. And then in another group, they're gonna give them the vaccine and then give them the virus to see if it works. And so those will be started soon. And we're gonna see real science and start to understand it. Um, but we have to change the attitude towards science. We have to make people comfortable with this. This Oxford vaccine has been in development a decade and has been tried in close to 14,000 people already. It is safe. There's yet to be one. There are zero, so not yet one significant adverse event, which is really encouraging and exciting. And there are excellent immune responses. So in my mind, it will work. The question is how well will it work and how long it will work. And that will figure out, it's not gonna be one and done. The initial vaccines will be two shots and then there'll need to be booster shots later on, depending on how old you are, what your immune system is like. And so we'll have to develop ways to test and to do that. So it will be a new world, um, but it will be a world again, where we can go back to a new normal and a better quality of life than we're all doing now, secluded in our homes and zooming in two dimensions. I, I think that sounds very hopeful and promising. And, and I, I, I think that that that's right, but um, I think the vaccine could be a ways off. What do you think before we actually have it available for a lot of people? I and think it's going to be this fall. Um, I think it's going to be this fall. For, yeah, for people in general, we're going to start off with uh, frontline workers and higher risk individuals, and then we'll scale to the others. So it'll be available this fall. It'll probably take three to six months to vaccinate and make it available to the majority of the country. Um, but yeah, no, we're going to have hundreds of millions of doses in the fall and the data, you know, fingers crossed. I mean, uh, believe me, I'm a believer in the superstitious gods. Um, uh, I, I, the data look encouraging. I think it's going to work. Um, so I am optimistic. And if we have therapies like monoclonal that work, we have vaccines, even if we haven't vaccinated everybody yet, our shoulders come down. Um, and you know, we need to get our kids into school in the fall. We just need to, we have to figure out a way to change behavior bring down the incidence of virus in this country and do things right. Yesterday we launched, you know, this is the first time we're doing cloud-based enrollment for the a phase three trial in the world. We launched it here yesterday in the United States. Um, and without any media, media will start next week. Without any media, we've already had over 50,000 people sign up to be part of those trials. And so the American people are responding. They will say, we're going to fight this together just like we did in our world wars, we're going to get together and together we will make a difference. And they already are. I was astounded. We expected hundreds and we got tens of thousands and it just launched yesterday at 10 AM. So it's pretty wild and people are stepping up. And as the media come out over the next week or so, we're going to hit over a million and we're going to have people ready and are volunteering saying, I want to be part of the solution. So I'm proud of the country in that regard. Science will win and we will all be part of that solution. I, I hear you say that not everyone will get vaccinated. And I think we know that's true, but it seems like there's a growing sentiment of anti-vaxxers. And I'm concerned about how many people that may envelop and at least discourage enough to say, well, I don't really need to get it. Um, could, that, could that be a, a problem? Could that be a problem? I've already had three uh, uh, um, uh, individuals who have threatened my life. 
And two of them actually start tried to take action because we talk about vaccines. So it is a religious phenomenon. It's not science. It's not fact-based. It's religion. Um, and yeah, it scares me tremendously. What we're going to see, though, is that you have a right not to be vaccinated, but you don't have a right to travel state to state without a vaccine. Mm. You don't have a right to go to certain events without a vaccine because you don't have a right to harm others, just like you don't have a right to smoke in a restaurant. Um, and I think we're going to start to hopefully see things like that, where, yes, you you don't have to take a vaccine, but you don't have a right to really challenge the health of others because there will be many people in our country, very young people, very old people, people with other medical conditions who will not respond to the vaccine. So if we have a cohort of people who can spread the virus, we can kill them and we don't want that. And so we all have to step up for others and look at the data and be really aware of it and start to talk science. We need leadership in science. And it's something that you know has to change. We have to step up. Um, you know, I, I've put myself in a lot of uncomfortable situations over the last several months because we're forced to step up. You know, things have become politicized, whether it be drugs, whether it be vaccines, and that's just not right. There are no politics about science and disease. And we have to rise above that. It doesn't matter what party you are, how rich you are, what your beliefs are. Um, you know, these viruses can attack all of us. Diseases can attack all of us. And we have to rise above it and, you know, rise above it with real fact and real science. And that's what's scary. And, you know, listen, I get it. It's been very scary to the public because science has changed. Our understanding of this virus has literally changed on a weekly basis because this is all new. And when people see the science changing and the World Health Organization changing their opinion on certain things, like, oh my gosh, the science isn't right. Not the fact that science is iterating and learning as we go. We've never been transparent like this before and as vulnerable like this before as a field. And we have to not shy away from that vulnerability, but take it head on and explain um, and really get out there and talk and explain. You know, my life changed, you know, in the uh, 90s where I was sitting in my lab at Sloan Kettering and then there's a knock at the door and I look up and I go, oh my gosh, it was the man that year had been time man of the year. And I never met him, but he was knocking on my lab door. I got him Andy Grove. He was the CEO of a company called Intel at the time. And he came into my lab and he started to talk to me. And he said, listen, David, he had this Hungarian accent, which I can't even do. But he goes, David, and this is my attempt. Um, I like your science, but you're a horrible public speaker. It's your job to educate too. I go, no, no, no. I just need to do science. He goes, no, you don't. And he scheduled literally you know, uh, uh, several hundred talks for me where I would, on the way home from work, stop somewhere and have to give a lecture all over New York City. I was a Sloan Kettering at the time. And he forced me to be able to explain things to all different audiences. And really changed my life and really showed me that part of my role is not just to do science, but it's to explain science and be able to talk to people. And that the, the, the real challenge is to be able to do both because one without the other has very little power. And Andy was one of those people that just did it. I mean, he didn't ask me. He just sent me those faxes back then. Half the audience probably didn't know where the fax is. But we would get a piece of paper that told us where to show up. He just did it. And that was the personality he was. And it really changed my life in a positive way. Just listening to you about the uh, the vaccine issues, you envision there could be an immunity certificate or passport or something. Is that what you're sort of saying? So that we it would be dependent on us having some proof of some type of immunity that we could go mingle with people and travel. We'll have that. I mean, we're going to start to see it in other parts of the world before the United States. And you know, I'm part of a team that's been working on such a thing. Um, and yeah, we have to have that. Um, if you're from one country and the other country say, I don't want people who can potentially spread a virus coming to my country. 
Um, and there will be restrictions in that regard. And we're going to you know, have to the first time share healthcare data. That's a novel thing. Um, it'll be de-identified. It may be tied to your uh, you know, license in many respects. It's not going to be shared with your employer. But it's very important that we respect the fact that these viruses are easy to spread. And we're living in a new world and a world that is going to see you know, infectious disease being a dominant area that will shorten people's lives. And we can't accept that. Um, we really can't accept that. And we have to fight back. And we're going to fight back through technology, through data, and through science. And we will win in the end, but we have to fight back. What are some of the most exciting and promising developments on the horizon for extending the length and the quality of our life? What are some things we might not know much about yet? Yeah, listen, one came out today, which is the coolest. Um, it, it, you know, it was shown back in the 1950s, this woman named Wanda Ruth Lunsford, you know, took an old mouse and a young mouse. So she tied their skin together. And then she looked several weeks later and the old mouse, the gray hairs had turned brown again. The heart beat stronger. The muscles were bigger. She claimed she reversed aging. Well, they literally kicked her out of science. Well, mm -hmm. several years ago, groups at Harvard, UCSF and Stanford repeated Wanda's experiment and it worked. And just today, um, there was a researcher at UCSF that announced that he identified the protein that actually um, affects the brain and enables you not to lose cognitive function. It's the same protein that when you exercise goes up and helps the brain. That's why when you exercise, when kids exercise or adults exercise, cognitive function goes up. And he identified that individual protein. That doesn't mean that I could give it to you and you'll get smarter per se. I think the body's a little bit more complex like that, but it is amazing to know we can start to understand the physiology of it and potentially optimize it. So what, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to sit in your chair and not exercise anymore when we give you a shot, but it doesn't mean that we're going to have better science, particularly with regard to cognitive decline. Just a few hours ago, I saw a patient um, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. When she came in, it had spread to her brain and literally was coming through her skin. She thought she had an infection. It was breast cancer coming through her skin. Um, we had given her chemotherapy and she failed. And so we were lucky in that we were able to give her immunotherapy. We gave her a drug that blocked the don't eat me signal on her cancer. And she had just come back from touring and she's now singing. She had been traveling and singing. Now she's singing on Zoom to clubs across the, the globe. Um, but she's back to feeling normal, looking normal, and we can't see cancer on her scans. She's not cured, but we bought her years of quality of life because with immunotherapy, there's amazing responses, but they last for many years. And so we can use the own immune system to attack cancer. And that's crazy powerful if you think about it. You know, we're developing newer ways of visualizing things. You know, a paper came out two weeks ago. It was so cool. You know, anesthesia comes from ether, right? They had the ether domes in the old days of surgery. And you would sniff ether and then they would do surgery. And that really enabled the whole field of surgery to happen and enabled us to live much longer because surgery can solve many problems that affect us. We never knew how anesthesia worked. And for the first time now through technology, we can visualize the cell membranes. They show that it affect the proteins that were floating in the cell membrane and exactly how it worked through these new microscopes. And so the paper just came out several weeks ago, how anesthesia works. Amazing phenomenon, if you think about it. We've been doing it for a hundred years and we never knew how it worked and it just came out. So all these new technologies that enable us to visualize things at different scales, that enable us to make drugs literally overnight. You know, in the old days, literally, it would take a half a dozen people to be able to make a drug to a target over a dozen years. 
Um, and that would cost you millions and millions of dollars. Now I can 3D model the drug, identify something that uh, you know fits in where it will fit into a receptor. And then I could send that three-dimensional structure, President Trump won't like this, but I send it to Wuxi in China. And literally three weeks later, I get a vial back of the drug and I can test it. So in a matter of weeks, and it costs $25,000, I can have a candidate drug to hit a target. And a remarkable advance where it would literally take years and years and millions of dollars before. So we're in a new era in what I do. At the same time, you know, we have to respect the fact that face-to-face -face interactions work. We have to respect the fact that this organ up here, we still have no idea how it really works. And it is pretty remarkable that our brain, which is what distinguishes us besides the supposable thumb from most of the creatures on the earth, we have no idea how it works. Um, and we still have yet to develop a technology to really visualize it functioning and know how to protect it and what to do. We have a lot of observations and we have to respect those with data. We know if you sleep well, this thing works better. We know if you exercise, this thing's work better. We know if you meditate, this thing works better. But we don't know that much more. But we're going to be in a new era now because we now have these technologies that can see us on different scales. And it's going to be crazy exciting to be able to see it work. Very exciting time to be alive and a lot's left to do. David Agus wrote the book, The Lucky Years, How to Thrive in the Brave New World of Health. He's a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of California, where he also leads a transformative medicine institute. Jessica Hertzstein is a specialist in preventative and internal medicine and occupational and environmental health. Their conversation was part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts and look for us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's program was produced by Marcy Krivenin and the Aspen Community Programs team, which includes Zoe Brown, Katie Carlson, Crystal Logan, and Jillian Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.